Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ipsdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined once again by Media Evil's resident Doctor Who expert, Elizabeth Bonovan, who is back today to talk about Doctor Who audio drama, The Marian Conspiracy. So Elizabeth, welcome. Yeah, it's, it's always good to be here. Why don't you tell the listeners, in case they have not listened to any of your previous appearances, a little bit about who you are and about why, why you come and talk to us about Doctor Who. So a couple of years ago, it's been a couple of years now. Can you it believe has. that? Yeah. Wow. A couple of years ago, I was talking to Sarah and I found out that she had never seen an episode of Doctor Who before. And uh, Doctor Who, being a time travel show, has gone to medieval times like quite a few times. And so I was like, we should watch some Doctor Who. And so this is, I believe, our seventh time reviewing a piece of Doctor Who media. It was our first time reviewing something that is not television, which is very exciting. Yes. Or our first time reviewing Doctor Who that's not television. Uh, There there will be uh, the the movie episode of Willow that uh, you also were on. Fun fact, sometimes I watch things that aren't Doctor Who. Occasionally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, today we watched, uh, no, we did not watch, uh, there was nothing to watch, we listened to Doctor Who's The Marian Conspiracy, which is an audio drama released in 2000. Actually, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what is the background of the audio dramas, so kind of what are the circumstances that led them to move from television into uh, kind of releasing, I understand, a few of these audio dramas at some point in the (laughs) early 21st century few more like a few hundred but okay. uh, the classic series of doctor who begins in 1963 and uh was canceled in 1989 and i went over some of the background of that the last time we covered a doctor who serial mm-hmm. which was battlefield from 1989 yes. they attempted to revive the show with a tv movie in 1996 which introduced Paul McGann as the eighth doctor, but it was not picked up by the network for like a full series. So it just sort of stands on its own as a weird thing. Doctor Who did come back to television for real in 2005, but in between there, there was like quite a bit of non-television media, like novels and stuff. And in 1999, they started this... How do I explain what Big Finish is? Big Finish is, it's kind of like a, uh, an audiobook company, like Audible, except it's more focused on like making new original content for the audio format rather than like, we're going to put take books and put them on tape. Big Finish got the rights to make 
Doctor Who audio dramas. And uh, mm-hmm. and so they released released them in like the sort of classic serial format of there's four episodes, half hour long. They originally released them on CD, so per mm-hmm. each CD. And they, like, they play out like a classic serial. And they got mm-hmm. the actual actors who played the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th Doctors to come back and make these. All of the non-televised Doctor Who stuff has is in a weird place with regards to canon. And frankly, mm-hmm. everything with the canon of Doctor Who is weird because of the whole timey-wimey bullshit multiverse right. aspect. But the audio dramas are officially canon with the show for the most part. So there was a mini episode in 2013 called The Night of the Doctor, which was part of the whole 50th anniversary celebration. Uh-huh. And, it, and it features Paul McGann in his second and final actual televised appearance as the Eighth Doctor. The bulk of Paul McGann's like, appearances as the Eighth Doctor happened in audio format. Because mm. he started doing the audios in 2000 and like right that is the bulk of your eighth doctor content and by Uh, the time they started with the uh the new series in i think you said 2005 they had a new doctor presumably at that stage yep christopher eccleston is the ninth Mm -hmm. doctor so they brought the big finish audios into canon by having the eighth doctor name drop a bunch of his audio companions Mm. Thus, like, rendering them and all their adventures canon. Okay. That said, uh, this this serial is not the Eighth Doctor. <laughs> no, this serial is Colin Baker as the Sixth Doctor. And remind me, have I seen him? You have not seen him? Well, you once looked up a picture of him. I remember okay. this very clearly because I was talking about the Technicolor Nightmare Coat. And, uh, oh, okay. He's a technical or nightmare coat. Yeah, which okay. uh, doesn't come across across quite in the uh, sadly audio no. format. But <laughs> like, if if you know what he looks like, people like poke fun at his dress sense all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. No. The, okay. That that actually makes a lot of sense with some of the comments that are made over the course of uh, of this particular serial. Uh huh. <laughs> Yeah, so we have Colin Baker as Sixth Doctor. We have Maggie Stables as my personal hero, Dr. Evelyn Smythe, who we will be talking about a lot more because I want to be here when I grow up. <laughs> You're well on your way. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I think I'm going in that direction. Uh, we also have Nicholas Pegg as Reverend Thomas Smith. Anna Rudin as Queen Mary, Joe Castleton as Lady Sarah, Barnaby Edwards as Francois de Noailles, Sean Jackson as George Crow, and Jez Fielder as William Leaf. It looks like they've done, they've all done some kind of combination of audio and not audio things, but none of them were people who I was especially familiar with from anything else. Yeah, I think they're just, not every actor is a big name actor. Right, right. Uh, and especially for audio stuff I feel like it's I don't know maybe sort of relatively more recent that things that aren't Disney have really gotten like big people who are known for non-voice acting in as voice actors yeah that sounds right 
We begin and as our, our numeratio or recap section will go over some of the details. And uh, I will say I actually have much less of a sense than I often do of, I mean, than I do when watching things precisely actually when the episodes kind of started and ended. Just because first of all, I was listening to this mostly while walking and therefore was not taking as precise notes as normal. I listened to this for probably like the fifth time yesterday at work. So I, I kind of know where the uh, end of episode cliffhangers are. Right. Okay. I, I might remember some of them as we go, but yeah, as I said, I did not, I did not do as much note taking while watching on this particular occasion, except for just occasionally being like, oh, I should talk about this. So, mm-hmm. so we start with Dr. Evelyn Smythe, who is giving her lecture on Tudor history in which uh, she, I believe within the lecture actually name, name drops her ancestor, John Whitestone Smith, who uh, served at the court of Queen Elizabeth. Um, uh, and Smith. Yes, white side. White side. Yes. Yes. You said white stone. Oh, that's right. <laughs> white side. That's right. White side. I actually just recorded something else, which has something called white stone in it. So that was probably uh-huh. the uh, the origin of that particular mistake. That's going to um, trip us up. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so so uh, we'll see how many time more times I do that. So John Whiteside Smith is her ancestor who uh, served at the court of Queen Elizabeth. And she's trying to give this lecture. And while she's trying to give this lecture, she keeps having to yell at somebody who is not in her class, who has some device that keeps like beeping. Who could this person with the beeping device disturbing her class be, if not, of course, for the doctor? He warns her that she is part of a temporal nexus point. So essentially that there is something something historically going wrong that seems to somehow involve her. They go to her house and we start to learn a lot about Dr. Evelyn Smythe. She is our elderly academic, you know, spinster academic historian. She loves cooking. Uh, She, you know, bakes, she like bakes a lot for her students and seems to be a really fantastic cook. She also divorced her husband because he thought that their wedding anniversary was more important than an academic conference that she wanted to attend. I love this woman. She is amazing. The big Finnish audio dramas, they're usually, they've usually got like companions that were on the show. Like they they Mm -hmm. bring back the actors for that. But sometimes they like introduce new companions who are, original to the audio dramas and Evelyn is the first of these this is she this is, is amazing I love her so the much best. <laughs> and I find her deeply relatable <laughs> yes I'm like yeah no of course good for you divorce your husband he seems like he sucks um so the doctor says basically I was at the court of Queen Elizabeth I never knew a John Whiteside Smith and she's like of course she's like what she's like what what are you talking about but she asks her to prove the existence of this individual and she gets out you know she tries to get out all of these papers and it turns out that these papers that she has are blank and she's got like a computer program or something that her students set up and that like everything seems to be disappearing and yeah, it's, this it's of like, course yeah it, it, it's like a big diagram of her family tree and half the family tree is just evaporating before her eyes yes 
And this, of course, makes clear that it is something having to do with her family tree, which is related to this temporal nexus point. So because of this, the doctor suggests that there that the best idea is for him to travel back in time to the court of Queen Elizabeth in order to fix this problem. And Evelyn's like, I'm a historian. I'm obviously coming with you. I'm not going to pass up on a chance to go and hang out at the court of Queen Elizabeth, obviously, which, again, relatable. Yeah, absolutely relatable. And, I'm not yeah. going to just sit here while you go save my life. I'm coming with. Right. I think this actually might be one of the places where we get an early comment on uh, the doctor's fashion sense, actually, because he's like, you can't like wear a cardigan in like Elizabethan England. And she's like, well, what the fuck are you wearing? To be fair, like he does actually make a point of like, you know, putting on actual period appropriate clothing for one once because he mentions like, I look good in the rough. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, it's very funny because in the many Doctor Who episodes we have watched where we have seen people's costumes that people never, in fact, seem like they put on uh, period appropriate clothing. There there have been like a few examples, but nothing that, but like you generally know. Yeah, like I don't... I don't know. I think maybe like somebody like changed for a dance or something like that. But like in general, yeah, like they they wear what they came in, which is usually uh, does not suit the particular time and place necessarily. Although to, also to be fair, like they hardly ever target the air. Like they, they're hardly ever targeting. Usually they just land somewhere and wander out like, oh, I wonder where we are. Right. <laughs> Whereas true. this time they are aiming for a specific like time and place and thus can prepare yes i also really enjoyed the exchange where you know she makes sure to indicate you know that like she is dr evelyn Smythe, and again relatable uh women in particular cough all uh, often have their titles omitted cough yeah well she's gonna stand for that bullshit but of course the way that she introduces herself is used for a clever play on words because she's because yes uh because the doctor's like uh and you are ms and she's like, Smythe, Evelyn, Doctor. And he's like, oh, you know my name. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I think at some point he's like, she's like, oh, you're also a doctor. And he's like, the doctor. Yeah. And she does say that he can call her uh, by her first name since he's going to be saving her life and asks uh, what he can call, what she can call him, to which uh, doctor is in fact the uh, the best that he can do. I think at some point at this point, he does say that when I'm required to have a name, I find John Smith will do. Yeah, it's like, she's like, well, you must have a name. And he's like, sometimes it seems like I must. And when that happens, I become part of the great Smith clan. Yes. <laughs> they get in the TARDIS since of course she's insisted on coming I guess my understanding is that so I mean in general there are of course always these problems right where the TARDIS rarely goes precisely where it is supposed to be going or seems like it's aiming but in this particular case I my my impression as things went on at least is that the TARDIS was basically just sent to the like whatever the temporal nexus point was, and they were just a little off on when that would in fact be. Yeah, yeah. They uh it's hard to steer, but like it 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 was locked on to the nexus point. Yeah. It was yes. trying to track a thing. Which Yes. We which we have seen like a couple times before, like in the visitation where it's like the right. where the doctor is trying to search for the pteroleptals by like scanning for their electrical signatures and then he's able to like land 
right at the bakery on Pudding Lane. Yeah, so that it's not so easy to put like something into the TARDIS and say, we would like to go to September 5th, 1559. But it seems like the TARDIS is relatively good at if you like locking on to some kind of anomaly and going there. Yeah, yeah. And that seems to be what it does. Uh, The problem is just, however, that as we will see shortly, they're a little off on their assumption about where precisely it is that this temporal nexus point is, and therefore where, or I guess when, the TARDIS has taken them. They get in, so Evelyn's uh, situation seems to be getting worse. She essentially is having, uh, like, migraines that are related to her flickering in and out of existence, and is also increasingly, literally, flickering in and out of existence. Yep. Uh, which, and, and since it's getting worse, the doctor's like, well, that's a good thing because it means we're in the right place to find the nexus point and do something about it. It's not so good that, like, it's happening to you. So let me co- so let me cobble together, like, a stabilizer that you can, like, hold and that will stop you from fading out of existence. Like, the way I, yes. the way I, I like, envisioned it in my head, it's very back to the future. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Where it's like you have to you have to like prevent a bad thing from happening to your ancestors so you don't fade away. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that is what uh, will be more or less the uh, the plot of this serial. So Doctor goes to court. Uh, he of course has interacted with Elizabeth previously and thinks that that's a plan. Mm-hmm. And Evelyn insists that she's a historian. She's going to go experience history and she's going to go to a local ale house and have some good English ale and speak with local people in the 16th century, which again, relatable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the doctor's like, I, the doctor's like, I have talked to the queen before. I don't know if she's talked to me yet, but we'll see. <laughs> right. Right. But he gets to court. And is invited to come and attend the queen. And in particular, you know, especially because he introduces himself as a doctor, essentially. Uh-huh. And so they're like, great, doctor, you must be here to attend the queen during her pregnancy. And he's like, her what? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, hmm. If, the, if, the, if Elizabeth is, is expecting a child, history must be very, very wrong indeed. Right. So he is beginning to get an inkling that something isn't going quite well. And that it was eventually, of course, brought in and, uh, or well, so I guess like we get a, actually a few things before we get the official reveal, right? So he's immediately like, oh, something's not going right. Mm-hmm. And then meanwhile, at the ale house, uh, Evelyn meets some nice people that she's chatting with. They make a toast to the queen, and she says, "To good Queen Bess." Which and and we and doesn't... like the whole the whole tavern just just says like <gasps> and goes silent, and you hear like a glass dropping in the background. Right. And... The reveal that uh, we will get, in fact, is that uh, there. They're just a little bit earlier than they mm-hmm. expected. It is, in fact, still the reign of Queen Mary the First. So the doctor is brought to attend at one of Mary's, uh, what will turn out to, of course, be a phantom pregnancy, which we will discuss more of it later. Mm-hmm. Evelyn then is at a tavern, at a state, uh, you know, toasting to good Queen Elizabeth at a stage when officially Elizabeth is, uh, well, not in fact, in, uh, not even in fact, kind of definitively confirmed as heir to the throne. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and we get our first uh, end of episode cliffhanger where it's where the where the guys in the tavern are like, I won't be har- harboring traitors in my bar. Death to traitors, and like everyone starts chanting "Death to traitors," and then we get the end of episode credits music cliffhanger. Yes. Fortunately, however, it turns out for Evelyn that uh, she's the the nice young men that she's drinking with. It turns out that they're uh, a couple of Protestants who are not on board with Mary and in fact would love to have Queen Elizabeth on the throne. So they take her out and they go to meet with Reverend Thomas. And he, meanwhile, is a bit suspicious about basically who this weird woman is. And we already do have some indications, right? That people are like, are you far? And she's like, yeah. no, I'm English. And they're like, huh, you just seem a little weird. Yeah, yeah, you're dressed weird. You're acting weird. Are you sure you're not foreign? <laughs> and the thing that I don't think they actually say, but that I will add is that i would bet the accent probably feels a little off possibly yeah i just in terms of well i don't know maybe not because of like what the tardis does maybe it just sounds like she's speaking elizabethan english actually yeah that's that's it's it's a little tricky yeah Right. So, all right. So I'll, I'll let the language part go potentially, but certainly I would say she, she seems somewhat out of place and uh, Thomas and, yeah. and Reverend Thomas I thinks this, that there's a good pinch. Yeah. Yeah. This, this lady wanders in with like, you know, a cardigan and a handbag. So she is uh, right. It's like, it's like the doctor's like, you should, you should wear period appropriate clothing. And she'll like, I'll catch my death of cold. I'll hang on to my cardigan. Thank you. <laughs> Love it. And, and, Love and it. he's like, I... well, at least leave the bag behind. And she's like, I need my, I need the, the bag to tote around this, this uh, whirling beeping thing you've given me. So I don't fade away. I think this is more conspicuous than the handbag. And he's like, oh. You're right. Go ahead. <laughs> Which is a legit choice, a legit point, uh, as is, you know, not wanting to get cold. Again, relatable. Mm-hmm. Evil and Smythe is my future self. Uh, <laughs> Reverend Thomas, meanwhile, is suspicious that she could be a Catholic spy. Doc- the doctor, meanwhile, has been brought in and realizes, <laughs> to some extent to his relief, that it is not that history is so screwed up that Queen Elizabeth is expecting a child, but rather that he has just arrived a bit earlier than anticipated and is attending Queen Mary. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they have a lovely, they have a lovely chat. Yeah. And yeah, we actually have a Queen Mary who, and this is actually presented as being uh, in some ways quite open-minded and quite willing to hear opinions that are uh, maybe a little different from her own. Yeah, she's like, I am sick to death of all these yes men. Please give me your honest, like, original opinion. (laughs) Yeah, and he's like, you know, I don't think it's gonna, like, turn out so, like, I don't think you're gonna be remembered well because you're so mean to the Protestants. And she's like, I appreciate your honesty, but also no, I'm not being mean to the Protestants. Yeah, she's like, I am trying to save their souls. (laughs) And, And, but, like, she also respects him when he says, like, as a doctor, like, I cannot condone the taking of life in any manner and she's like yeah that's that's fair i'm gonna keep doing what i'm doing but your but your point like that's fair yeah yeah it's like she she respects his opinion she doesn't agree agree, but she she, respects his opinion yeah we also at this stage meet uh francois de noailles who is the uh i believe described here as the bishop of axe which i will 
that sounds yeah that sounds right i think it's it was interesting i'll mention this later but uh at least so at least in all the things i was i could find he was a like written out to he was referred to as the bishop of ox he's actually the bishop of ducks which is a different place yeah so oops. we also i don't know we may have been hearing it wrong too because those are very close right and yeah so it's like i might have been hearing it wrong as i said like the like they say they, if I, they yes. say it like twice at most yeah so yeah so the uh the people if i was hearing it wrong i will just add that the people who do the like tardis wiki also apparently were hearing it wrong uh uh so well then it's probably that <laughs> yeah so uh that that is the only thing that i'll note but uh you know they're they're very close so he basically tries to say to you know get her to reconcile with Elizabeth, and she's like no. And this seems to be basically a way to kind of try and like essentially he really just kind of wants to kind of shake things up such that the English are not quite so closely allied with the Spanish, since of course this is the point at which Mary is married to Philip II of Spain, a yeah. deeply unpleasant individual. Oh yes, but. Yeah, Spain and France are at war, and and Dunaway is like his his goal at the moment. Like he is trying to ensure that England does not join Spain in fighting against France. And and like there are other there were like earlier mentions of, of this war. Like in the tavern, one of the guys says, uh, "I'll say this. I'll say one thing for Jack Spaniard. At least he's not a Frenchman." Right. <laughs> And this is very much like the, a lot of what sort of like politics looks like in this period in the mid 16th century is that there is this kind of like constant renegotiation of alliances and wars, etc. between in particular the English, Spanish and French. Mm -hmm. You always, if you're one of those three, don't want the other two to be friends. Exactly. Basically. Yep. That's clearly what his main goal is. He also chats with Mary's lady-in-waiting, Sarah, and tells her to send a messenger to go find Evelyn, who at this point he is worried about what she has managed to get up to in this traditional English tavern. Yeah, it's like, hmm, she went in thinking Elizabeth is queen. Let's uh, make sure she doesn't yeah. say anything that she shouldn't, <laughs> which mm -hmm. she already has. <laughs> She, meanwhile, is uh, speaking further with Reverend Thomas, who at some point reveals that he's planning a plot against Mary. And she, having, of course, her modern knowledge, is like, well, that's obviously not going to work out, but also tells him in this context, which is, you know, the, the cardinal rule of time travel, right, I feel like, is that you don't tell somebody things that, you know, you only know coming from the future. yeah. Yeah, but she does not know this yet. Like this is this is a this is the lesson that she has to learn. Yes, in and this, her introductory story. Yes. So, and she basically says, like, no, don't worry. Like, she's gonna die. Elizabeth will be like eventually. Like, she'll die in a couple of years. Elizabeth will be queen. It's fine. And he's like, but she is pregnant. And she's like, well, about that, she's kind of not. And he's like, really yeah. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Your tone, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, he's a, he's a very like sinister figure. Huh? He kind of is, just a bit. 
<laughs> like Evelyn talks to this man for one minute and she's like, mm, I don't like him. I don't like him. He's yeah. unpleasant. He's kind of a dick. Yeah. She's like, no, he's, yeah. She's like, oh, he's, he's just like, you know, like looks, looks nice, but you know, real asshole, this guy. Yeah. She's at, at one point, she's like, I'm sympathetic to the Protestant cause. I just don't like you. Right. Just you personally. She does, however, get on better with uh, Crow and especially Leaf, the two men that she met in the tavern. And she uh, she has insisted on bringing Coco with her because yeah. you can't get to that back then. Yeah, and, and, she's uh, like, and she's like, and I'm not gonna, I'm not going anywhere without, like, access to chocolate. <laughs> right, right. Which, again, fair. I, I, relatable deeply relatable absolutely and she's like i can't screw up history too too much by like you know giving these three men a taste of chocolate right right how how bad could how bad could it be and that does not seem to uh to be an issue i guess yeah. uh yeah so that one at, that at one point fine. she mentions that like it was brought over by Cortez, and they're like, that sounds Spanish. And she's like, well, he was. I think he's active about now, actually. <laughs> and she's, you know, she's close. Yeah. I think, he, I think he is dead by now, I believe. Yeah. But, like, you know, she, rel- relatively she's, close. She's in the right ballpark. Yeah. Yeah, quite close. He, uh, he died 1547. So oh, definitely so very close, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we're, because we're in, um, as we realize, once we realize, Mary is still queen. She's in uh, 1555? 15... Yes, 1555. Yeah. yeah. It's like, Mary will die in November of 1558. It is currently January of 1555. Yes, that's right. And that makes sense also timing-wise based on some other stuff that will happen uh, shortly, that, that will happen uh, at the end that we'll, yeah. we'll get into. Because they, they mention, I, I believe, last month's edict that uh, heretics will be burned at the stake. Yes. And by yes. heretics, we mean Protestants. Indeed. Indeed. We also get a like, oh, what's in your bag? We get like a nice like unboxing podcast, basically, with the contents of Evelyn's bag. She, she teaches Leaf how a zipper works. Uh, uh-huh. And he is yeah, absolutely delighted by it. It's like, ah, look at <laughs> that. That's so neat. Yeah. There's also a bit where there's like something that she hesitates to take out, and they're like, "You are hiding something," and she's well, no, like, "No, the uh, it, that that bit comes a little bit later, but because because she oh, has to turn right. out her bag twice, she oh, turns yes, out her bag right. later. But but at this point, like, she's just like, "Can you grab yes. my my the sweetener tablets out of the little pouch right. there?" And right. he's like, That's "These right. tablets," and she's like, "No, those are my painkillers." Right. So yeah, she has those as well, that she has uh, prescription painkillers and says, you know, don't take those, right? Because if you take too many, you could overdose and uh, could become quite sick or die if you take and, a yeah, lot of painkillers. And Reverend Thomas is like, you could die if you t- if you take those? Interesting. <laughs> yeah, which is, this was a bit that I'm like, okay, I know you probably don't know very much, maybe personally, Reverend Thomas, about medicine, but like, this is already a thing in this period of time where like people already at least like doctors certainly already know that there are substances that will be fatal if you take too much of them but that can function as medicines if you take a small amount of them yeah yeah the question is like would he know that and and also i think and also i think in, in later conversations like the exact 
wordage of that gets a little tangled. Yes. So. Yes. But he he's like, hmm, interesting about that. So meanwhile, the uh, the message arrives for Evelyn. The the message also has gotten a little bit garbled, and she seems to think the urgency is because the doctor is in trouble. So she rushes off, and yeah. Leaf comes along with her to but, show her uh, where she's going. It's like it's like yes. she's like I need to get to the to the palace, and and they're like, do you know where the palace is? And and she's like, no. And, the, and, and Leaf's like, I'll take you. They're heading off. With the two of them having left, our good friend, the Bishop de Nui, arrives, and he is here to chat with Reverend Thomas, and they are in league with one another, as it turns yeah. out. They are, they are both trying to get Elizabeth on the throne. T- for Reverend Thomas, for, Yeah, Reverend Thomas for Protestant reasons. And de Nui, because uh, he thinks that Elizabeth will be more sympathetic to France in this whole England, France, Spain thing. Right, I guess on the grounds of, well, he's more, on the grounds that, like, Philip is, like, as the Catholics options go, more of a dick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, specifically and, and also, in and, in his well, and, Catholicism. And also that he, he reasons that, like, Anne Boleyn had known French leanings, so maybe those also apply to her daughter. Right, yeah, and and also that, you know, Mary, of course, because, of course, of Mary's marriage, she has this connection with Spain, and so it certainly could be considered to be understandable that maybe she would then want to distance herself from that. This is also, I will just add, the period where, like, it seems like Philip is basically just like, well, Mary seems like she might die, and so is just kind of, like, hitting on Elizabeth when he gets the chance to be like, hmm, hmm? Next wife number, next wife? Thumbs up? Thumbs up, maybe? (laughs) And Elizabeth, who, like, saw her dad, is like, no. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Not great. Not great. Well, and Philip will, of course, go on to have a number of wives, including, uh, eventually, he will marry a French princess. So... Ah, we love it. We love to see it. Of course. Of course. Anyway. Okay, sucks. The bishop, as he's popping in, also tells the reverend about the doctor and that he seems to be somebody who's really going to be, you know, a kind of thorn in their side in terms of carrying out their plans. And he's like, oh, the same doctor that Evelyn is friends with? Of course she's a traitor. Yeah. She's like, he's like, she is a spy. She was talking about this doctor. And and, because Evelyn was like, the doctor is, is, is known at court. He maybe could help us. And, uh, it could help your cause. And uh, the doctor, meanwhile, the doctor said, says to Denouai, like, at that point, it's like, whatever you're planning, it won't work. So just stop. Right. They now are beginning to plot against the doctor and Evelyn. They want to get them out of the way. Yeah. And this is where the uh, contents of her bag once again seem of interest. Yeah. Because, like, our good reverend. Reverend Thomas, like, says that there's there's something in her bag that, like, could be fatal, and uh, the queen is paranoid, so we'll go in and accuse her of carrying poison into the queen's presence. Yes. Wait, she left her bag here. Shit. <laughs> yes, and so it turns out that, I mean, her leaving her bag there was, in fact, quite bad, because her in her bag is also the stabilization device that keeps her from blinking in and out of existence. Yeah. So, so she's... she's- Running along, she starts to fade out of existence, and Leaf is terrified. Understandably, understandably. yeah. 
like what's happening and and our point two cliff and our part two cliffhanger is like she's about to fade away yes and then as we open up on the next episode what it turns out is that she is suddenly fine and that this is because the reverend thomas has showed up with her bag not in fact because he's you know concerned that she doesn't have her bag but because it has this poison in it that uh, so that she it is crucial that she have her bag in order to be framed for trying to poison the queen yep she gets her bag back and is uh, fully recovered of the uh, from the blinking in and out of existence for the time being and continues along her way to court the doctor meanwhile is uh i think the doctor is actually kind of rather charmed by mary and is like she she really seems much much nicer than i would have expected based on yeah. what people usually say about Queen Mary the First, of course, nicknamed Bloody Mary. Yep. He actually, like, relates with her on levels that he finds a little bit uncomfortable. Yes. Yes. Hmm. She was, she's vilified for, for, just because she did what she thought was right and people died as a result. Ah. Okay. That's, uh... (laughs) uncomfortably like things i have done in my own past Hmm. yes yes which he brings up of course as he is talking with uh mary's lady and waiting sarah who he's bonding who is bonded with sarah we will also should note at this point seems to really not be fond of one particular legal chain legal religious change that mary made which is that she decided that Protestant clergy who, uh, that is essentially that like all of these clergymen, right, who had been Protestant and therefore had decided getting married is fine, that now this is a problem and they are no longer able to marry and in fact have to, essentially kind of any marriages that they had are now no longer treated as being legitimate. Yeah. Evelyn then shows up, you know, at first very concerned for the doctor and, uh, you know, it turns out everything seems to be fine, but didn't know why, bursts in and, and accuses Evelyn of trying to poison Queen Mary. This is the point, of course, where the doctor makes the very reasonable point that, again, the pills are medicine and that they're the uh-huh. kind of medicine that if you take a small dose, it's okay. You just can't take a lot of them. Yeah, Exactly. Right. And Joanne is like, no, it's poison. And the doctor's like, and, you know, and then somebody's like, all right, Evelyn, would you take one? And she's like, yeah, actually, I've got a headache right now. That would be great. And, you know, takes a pill. And then the doctor is like, actually, your highness, would you like to take a pill? Which yeah. she does. In and fact. she feels, and it, and it, you know, helps with her headache and her aches and pains. And she's like, yeah, in fact, that, that prescription painkiller uh, really, in fact, did its job. Yeah. <laughs> so she is basically thrilled, in fact. That particular plot is foiled relatively easily. And, uh, and, and at one point during this uh, sequence, like, Evelyn's like, how did he know about my pills? <gasps> Reverend Thomas. And she says, and, and like, she says this like quietly, but out loud. So it's like, she's like saying it to herself. So maybe they didn't catch it, you think? But then when like everyone like leaves late, like Queen Mary, she's, she said, she calls a servant over and is like, find out who the, that Reverend Thomas person that, that, uh, that Evelyn mentioned is and find out everything about him and everything about everyone who knows. <laughs> Yeah, 
And meanwhile, Reverend Thomas has uh, decided to accelerate their plot and meets with somebody and says, you know, here's a potion, just pops a few drops of it in uh, the queen's beverage or on her food and she'll be good to go. Also, it then comes up that, well, of course, he won't try to murder Mary, says uh, George Crow, I believe, because he would never murder a pregnant woman. At which point, Evelyn says, to paraphrase, fuck. Because she told the Reverend Thomas that Mary is not pregnant. And so now that will not hold him back. Yes. George Crow is like, I no longer want any part in this. Like, it was all fine when we were, like, resisting the queen, but we don't actually want to, like, murder her. Yeah, they're like, ooh, that feels like a little much. Murder's a sin, right? Murder seems bad. Yeah. God said like a no on if I'm remembering correctly in that whole mm-hmm. Bible thing. Yeah, just a bit. The other fun discovery that we have is so the queen wants to reward the doctor for his services, and she has found it very rewarding to be married. And so she suggests that this is, in fact, a great idea as a way then to reward the doctor. And suggests, in fact, that, oh, my lady-in-waiting, Lady Sarah, she seems fond of you. Why don't we do that? The doctor, like, cannot politely say no, although he has earlier, like, expressed his views that, like, I think that doctors should be like men of the church, and they should not marry, and they should just be dedicated to helping the people. And like, she's like, that's not a thing. Yeah, and, and, and like, well, he said that to Lady Sarah, and that's what yeah. set her off on her rant about, like, the clergy not being able to marry and how much she right. like that. This incarnation of the Doctor, a, a, little, a little aside ramble about, like, the Doctor and queerness, Colin Baker and, and also Tom Baker especially, like, p- played their incarnations of the Doctor as specifically being, like, aromantic asexual. Mm-hmm. And so, like, when the doctor's like, when Queen Mary tells the doctor, like, you're going to be married, the doctor's like, I am not on board with this at all. No. I, I do not want this. No. Yeah, no, he is very unenthused. But it then comes up that Sarah is, in fact, named Sarah Whiteside. And Evelyn says, Oh my goodness, you must be my great great granddaddy. Yeah, it's like John, Dr. John Smith, Lady Sarah Whiteside, John Whiteside Smith, and what could be more natural than naming a son after his father? But of course, the other and, and, realization that they come to is didn't you say though that Mary executed John Whiteside Smith's father? Yeah. It's like, it's like, she's like, uh, oh, I can't. This will be so fun to to tell everyone when we get home. And he's like, if if this is true, we're not going anywhere because John Whiteside Smith's father was executed by Queen Mary. Yep. (laughs) And that's our part three cliffhanger. (laughs) Yes. So that is obviously a potential problem that we might have there. Just a bit. (laughs) Just a little bit. I also was kind of listening to this and I was wondering, you know, before I obviously kind of, you know, heard, heard the rest of it, that I was like, 
can he have children? I mean... Or, like, especially, like, with other, like, with, like, with humans. A, with a, uh, that's a yeah. good question. I actually have no idea. No, no. It is possible for a Time Lord to have a child with a human. We know this because later on... Okay, so the first Doctor's first companion was his grand was his granddaughter, Susan, right? Mm-hmm. Susan was left behind on Earth because she fell in love with, like, a resistance fighter fighting against the Daleks in the 22nd century. Mm-hmm. Later on, Susan reunites with her grandfather, now in his eighth incarnation, and she has a son, the half-human Alex Candle. Oh, okay. And so they, they travel again with the eighth Doctor for a while. So it is possible. Okay. The part of Alex Campbell is played by Paul McGann's actual son. So, Aww. That's so that's cute. fun. Yeah. But yeah, so, okay. So he, he could technically uh, be her ancestor. So, okay. Hearing, of course, this possibility, it then uh, perhaps seems rather dire that Mary's guard arrive and arrest them because Reverend Thomas has suggested that uh, they could be their co-conspirators. Yeah, the, the, the guards caught up with Reverend Thomas and threw him in, in the tower for being a Protestant. And he's and they're like, name your, co- name your co-conspirator other Protestants. And he's like, oh, well, Dr. John Smith and, and Evelyn Smythe. <laughs> Right. They're, they're totally people you should arrest. Right. And I will say that there there certainly are Protestant issues, but I believe he also, there are uh, already, like, are you conspiring against the Queen issues as well? Yeah. Yeah. So lots of problems there with our dear friend, Reverend Thomas. The Doctor and Evelyn are imprisoned in the tower and uh, realize that this could go badly, that it's very possible that a plot has already been set in motion and they need to keep it from happening. Uh, and their guess is that uh, perhaps Dinoai is uh, in league, who they know is in league with Thomas, is uh, trying to poison the sacraments. I think this also is around when Thomas also at some point, um, I, this, or this might have been a bit earlier, that Thomas manages to kind of, oh, kind of like gets to Dinoai and is like, help me, hide me. And he's like, no, I don't like you that much. Yeah, it's like, you are a Protestant and a heretic. We are only, it's like, yeah. He's it, like, I'm a Catholic and, and, bishop. Yeah, and, and uh, Reverend Thomas is like, our plot, the one we, the one we're working on together, and, and the and the bishop's like your plot. If it goes like, if it works, great, good for both of us. But if it fails, I don't want to be associated with you. Right? Yeah. And he's like, well, I'll accuse you. And he's like, yeah, who's gonna believe that one? Good luck with that, buddy. Get out. <laughs> that is what they're uh, they're worried about. Is that uh, they're going to uh, poison the sacraments. Yeah. So because, they because, um, they're, because they're like the queen has food tasters. How are they going to? Well, so they're they're in the the cell in the tower. They're trying to figure out like how they're going to assassin attempt to assassinate the queen and and like and Evelyn's like they can't just walk in with a bomb. Like there's security. They can't like and and, and the doctor's like they'll, they'll probably try poison because. Uh, <laughs> It's the traditional man- manner of courtly assassinations. And also, like, these guys tend to jump to poison as a conclusion if the whole business with the painkillers is any indication. Right. Also, it's the mid-16th century. Yeah. Yeah. 
like there's not a lot of examples of like bombings. True. Although it it's less than a century before the Catholics will try that stunt on True. King True. James. True. But, so, you know, not not impossible, but uh, uh-huh. not and, the and, most and, likely. Yeah. So they 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 reason that it's probably poison, and then they're like, okay, but the queen has food tasters, so it's not like they can just poison her anytime. Right. And so then they're like, when is the queen like consuming something that will not have been like food tastered beforehand? And so they're like, she's going. Evelyn's like, well, to hear crow and leaf sell it, the the only thing she ever does is go to mass. And they're like, the sacraments. They're going to poison the sacraments. I find it really interesting that there are multiple things out there where a sacrament poisoning is part of the plot line. I can't think of any others, but then you you obviously know more medieval. <laughs> I watch a lot of these than, things. It's um, like you have a podcast about it. It's almost like I do. The other thing that jumps out to me that I thought of immediately is that it's inserted as a plot line in uh, the show Rain, which I would describe as having a blithe disregard for historical reality. <laughs> Rain. That's uh. <laughs> It's about Mary Queen of Scots. I was about to say, is that the Mary Queen of Scots one? (laughs) Yeah, and it's like, it's like Mary Queen of Scots meets Gossip Girl is kind of the vibe. Yes, okay, I remember this episode now. (laughs) Yeah, and there's like, and there's a whole plot line where there is an attempt to poison King Henri II uh, using communion wafers. Incredible, phenomenal. um, Modern people seem to think this is a real potential issue for medieval monarchs or late or early modern monarchs at least it's like how do you get around the food tasters well church <laughs> sacrament they manage to escape and they mostly managed to escape because evelyn like fakes it you know both to the guards and to the doctor like fakes like oh i'm blinking out of existence again oh no uh, uh, she, well she's she's like oh i feel so sick and and the doctor's like oh no I failed you, Evelyn. I'm so sorry. And and then the, the guard comes in and is like, what's going on? And Evelyn's like, doctor, the chair. Hit him with the chair. <laughs> yeah, so because of that, they uh, do indeed manage to escape. And she's like, oh, violence never solved anything. And he's like, it doesn't. Mm. Why did you make me do that? I didn't want to have to do that. It's like, well, and just this one. Saving one life at the expense of others is not okay, Evelyn. Right. They manage to, so having managed to escape, they make it. But as they are about to, like, show up at math, at this point, I think the doctor's like, I feel like the reverend and the bishop would both hesitate at the idea of poisoning the sacraments, since that seems just, like, a little sacrilegious. Just a bit. Just a bit. Um, like, Just he, a tad. Yeah. They're, they're, like, they're talking to Lady Sarah, like, outside, and uh, and it's at that point that the doctor, like, puts together, wait, no, they absolutely wouldn't. <laughs> These are churchmen. And on the one hand, you know, the uh, the idea that there has never been a hypocritical churchman is, like, a little, like, okay, sure, but... Yeah, but, uh, but, they're, but like, you know, it's a little... It seems like know, a little much. No. Ah. Uh, I mean, this this man is devoutly Protestant enough that he has yes. stayed in England and to, like, try and rescue his fellow, fellow Protestants. Right. 
earlier on when when uh she first met him like and evelyn is having her first conversation with reverend thomas she's like you're a rich man you could you could like escape the country and, and he's like right. i could but but people like leaf and crow can't so i'm i stay yeah. for them and and i'm and like it's this is like one of the very few times where like I'm like I'm on board with Reverend Thomas. It's like yeah, oh, yeah. Like look out for the, the other guys. That's yeah, and like good that, for you. Yeah, and like that's kind of cool of you actually that you're you're not just looking out for yourself. You care about the other people who are in your position that don't have the luxury of just leaving the country. So yeah, good good mm-hmm. for them. Good for him in, in that one specific respect. Not a lot of others, not but that others. one. And at this point, also the doctor's like. Huh, Sarah, you had really strong opinions, didn't you, about that whole clerical marriage thing? He's finally heard uh, the Reverend Thomas's last name and and pieces yes. together Lady Sarah Whiteside, Reverend Thomas Smith. Yes, a member, Whites. another member of the Great Smith Clan. Yeah, it's like. Evelyn's like, huh, another Smith. And the doctor's like, well, it is the most common name, last name in these parts. It's why I choose it as an alias. Right, right. So, and that is the realization, is that, in fact, this is the Smith in question. He and Sarah are married, and, uh, or at least, you know, they they think they're married, married, disagrees. They're married, Uh, married under edward's law but not mary's uh, under edward's law and under protestant you know like, theology yeah. they would be considered married it's, according it, it, to like, pe- mary people keep and sa- catholicism people keep saying, yeah. yeah people keep saying like back when it was legal and mary like keeps snapping it was never legal in the eyes of god right so yeah so there's obviously different both uh legal and theological things going on Anyways, but uh, the the doctor does. Uh, so it turns out, of course, that Sarah that Sarah was going to be the one to poison Mary. Her excuse is the least believable thing I've ever heard. Is that she's <laughs> like, what? No, I didn't know it was poison. I thought it was uh, a special potion that would get you to be nicer to the Protestants. <laughs> and, and and Mary's like, I should never have been as merciful to the Protestants as I was. Yes, that you are like, all going to burn. Yes, and the doctor, because in fact Sarah is pregnant, manages to talk Mary into not executing her, and she's like, yeah. "Well, only because I care so much about my own baby, which is fake." Will I uh, save, yeah. you, save you and your baby? Yeah, and uh, the doctor like also t- says, "So your sister is also uh, under house arrest, right?" And she's like. Yeah, and he's like, why don't you send Lady Sarah to, like, be imprisoned with her and serve her? And and Mary's like, yeah, okay. It's like, yeah, sure, whatever, I guess, which I'm also just a little, like, I feel like that's not my reaction to somebody trying to kill me, but sure. Yeah, well, like, she was gonna lock her up anyway, so, so the doctor's like, why don't you lock her up here? Right. In this so, place that history says that she's going to be. Um, right. So very, very convenient uh, of all of it. So she is sent there. And she then thanks the doctor and says, I'll name my son John after you. Hence, John Whiteside Smith. Yep. The doctor earned Queen Mary's favor earlier, which like he has cashed in this favor to, yeah. to earn Lady yeah. Sarah some clemency. But now she's just like, I don't want to see anyone all of you get out of my sight. 
Right. She's just like, I am, I am done with the lot of you, which again, uh, fair actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so the doctor and Evelyn are like, okay, we had sorted it out. Uh, your John Whiteside Smith's father is going to be executed. John Whiteside Smith's mother is going to go serve Queen Mary in her, in her exile. And John Whiteside Smith will be born and serve Elizabeth faithfully and all is well and good. Thomas, by the way, uh, is is indeed going to be executed as he is supposed to be. He is offered the opportunity to uh, work, have things work out a little better for him if he recants his Protestant faith, but of course refuses. Yep. Goodbye, Reverend Thomas Smith. Mm-hmm. Rest in peace, I guess. And and Evelyn says the worst part of this whole thing is that is that I found out that I am uh is that I, I found out that I am descended from these two assholes. Right, right. And I will add, uh, this is also, by the way, one of the uh, the points where, you know, get the comment on the doctor's clothing that is like, well, it could be worse. You could be descended from me. And she's like, I could never be descended with somebody with your dress sense. <laughs> she does manage to uh, talk the doctor into rescuing uh, Crow and Leaf from their cell in the tower where they are also yes. being executed. And yes. they like, pick them up and they also pick up George Crow's family and like fly them off to Geneva, which is like a Protestant held city at this yeah. point too. It's like, you know, lay low here for a few years. In a, and it's like, Evelyn's like, can I tell them what's going to happen? And, and the doctor's like, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> and, and she's like, Mar- Mary will die in November, 1558. She will not have a child. And Elizabeth will be queen. And at that point, you can go back to England if you want. Right, right. Um, I also really love when she's trying to convince the doctor that it's like, it's, it's very transparent. He's like, I can almost feel myself blinking out of existence again. I think there's something else we have to do. I don't know. Uh, my, I'm getting a headache. headache. <laughs> yeah. Which is which is great. I I think it's fantastic that she just keeps like like milking that for all it's worth. She obviously you know she's been the doctor's companion, of course, throughout this serial. And at the end of all this, as they send Crow and Leaf and Leaf off, she then indicates, "Yeah, I'm a historian. I want to see more history. Show me more history. I'm going to stick with you." And and, the, <laughs> and he's like, "Oh no, I'm taking you right home." And and she, and like she sort of like. There's some banter and she sort of like reverse psychologies him into like, oh, I I bet you can't actually show me anything more. And he's like, oh, d- you're on. Yeah. And I think she also offers to make him a chocolate cake. Yeah, she does. This actually ties into uh, a, a minor thread in uh, in the show, too, which near the end of the sixth doctor's run, he was uh, flying with a companion named Mel, who was always like trying to get him to eat healthier and like and so now we have a companion before mel who like starts him on like eating a whole bunch of junk food and chocolate <laughs> how about some home-baked goods yeah and yeah. uh and he's like okay well should we go visit the, the court of elizabeth next because you didn't actually get to meet her and she's like i think we should go to somewhere where they understand chocolate first yes <laughs> which fair very fair, fair. I think I'm trying to remember what the next Six and Evelyn audio is. I think, oh my God, is 
is it the apocalypse element next? Let me, I need to look this up. Sorry, this is going to bother me. Okay, um, I was going to say, I, I feel like it would be really entertaining if she's like, yeah, yeah, history, history. And then he like semi-accidentally takes her to like some weird future thing. And she's like, this uh, isn't what I asked. Well, I feel like that is what happens next because, huh. Oh my God, it is. Their next outing together sees them, I think in the 1980s in England where, uh, they have to deal with some alien. Um, I want to say a leprechaun, but don't, but like not like a leprechaun, leprechaun, like the horror movie leprechaun. Uh huh. One of those creatures. They run into the brigadier while they're there, and together they have to deal with this creature thing that is running around murdering people on the moors. Ooh, interesting. And, and then they go to the future and fight Daleks. Mm. Which is poor Evelyn's third adventure is fighting Daleks. Oh, and and not really any history. Nope. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, and she gets to she gets to meet Chuck Darwin later. It's fine. Oh, good. Um, oh, good. I'm glad. So at this point, I think we can get into the Vera et Falso, where we talk about what the audio drama got right and wrong. So I first wanted to talk about taverns beer and how they relate to gender since of course we have evelyn at the beginning just uh going into her traditional ale house to have a nice glass of traditional english ale mm-hmm. so first of all i'll note that she seems rather surprised by the taste of what she gets which is interesting because the mid-16th century is a moment in which we see beer and ale competing for popularity. And beer and ale, while today I would say at least Americans often use the terms basically synonymously, there is in the late Middle Ages and early modern period a clear distinction between the two. So when we talk about beer, we're talking about something that has hops. And hops are important not just for flavor, as you, of course, the flavor would be quite prominent if you, especially if you are an IPA drinker, uh-huh. those have a lot of hops. But all beer made now has hops, and that's because hops are a preservative. So even if you are not emphasizing the hop flavor, you still are going to have hops in your beer because it actually makes it last a lot longer uh, and allows you to therefore also produce it in significantly larger quantities. That also is something that's going to create beer that tastes more like what you anticipate beer tasting like today. When you are talking about ale in this context, uh, you're referring to something that does not have hops and that because of that, as a way to kind of essentially be kind of alternate, the kind of alternate, not quite as effective uh, preservatives that also, so you know, and also something that's considered to add to the flavor is that you would include various kinds of herbs and spices. So ginger, gillyflower, mountain thyme, and curcuma are in particular kind of popular choices. But individual brewers of ale would probably have their own kind of signature blend of uh, of herbs and spices that you would include uh, that would distinguish your ale from that made by other ale brewers. The other interesting thing, and of course, this is uh, Judith Bennett's work in particular that has uh, really focused on this, is that the transition that we see from ale to beer, which is something that starts happening in England in the mid 14th century, and uh, increasingly we're seeing kind of so by, by the mid 16th century, 
Beer is increasingly, I would say, the more popular beverage in the city of London, but ale is still probably dominant in the countryside. So we're still in a kind of transition moment, but we're seeing beer becoming more and more common. First of all, beer at this point in the mid-16th century in England is still often brewed by foreigners uh, in England. Uh, so people who have actually come to England basically in part to kind of get in on the brewing trade there, as opposed to maybe, you know, places like Germany uh, or Flanders where the trade where that trade is already kind of a bit more saturated. But the other interesting distinction in, uh, between ale and beer in terms of who's making them is that the uh, brewing of ale had for a long time been a profession dominated by women. Women are very, very active as brewers, but as the brewing industry becomes more profitable, which is something associated with this transition uh, to beer and with the introduction of hops, because essentially it's more profitable because you can make a lot more, whereas you can only brew ale in relatively small quantities because it will go bad. But you can really get into like wholesale trade if you're making beer in contrast. As the brewing trade becomes more profitable, increasingly it becomes gradually a male-dominated trade. So we're sort of at that kind of moment of transition. And the other interesting thing when we're talking about the kind of culture surrounding beer and ale in the mid-16th century in England is that that culture is also very gendered. So especially, of course, as uh, you don't have as many women brewing beer, you also increasingly see uh, efforts to police women's presence in spaces like taverns and alehouses. So these are not exclusively masculine spaces, but there is something of a sense of basically women as being in these spaces as needing to essentially kind of be there in certain specific contexts. So it's not that women can't be there at all, but that women tend to be there uh, either accompanied by men, so particularly your husband, but also uh, that this would be basically like, a, you know, a perfectly acceptable 16th century, like have a nice like first date in public, like have like a courtship, like have like a date in public mm -hmm. situation so that you could go there with, uh, with a young man that you are courting on a date. In addition, you also could go in a group of other women. But being a woman alone in a tavern or alehouse would be considered a bit odd and not particularly respectable. So and this is something I actually kind of wish that they sort of actively mentioned, that they clearly find other things about Evelyn odd. And this is something also that one could argue they would have found odd as well, the fact yeah. that she's there on her own. Yeah, and, and Evelyn is, is not a young woman. Evelyn is... No. Evelyn is 55 and looks it. Like, act, honestly, uh, going from the sort of CD box art, she, she, look, she looks a bit older, even. Uh -huh. uh, but she mentions, like, very early on, like, before they've even started time traveling, with, uh, she's 55 because she's, like, a, when, when she's first trying to figure out what the doctor's deal is, she's like, are you from the faculty? Are they trying to convince me that I'm mad so they can force me into retirement? Yes. Because 55 is way too young for retirement. Yes. Yes. And she's right. Bless you, Evelyn. She is a bit older, which certainly kind of changes the dynamic to some extent that you're unlikely potentially to be perhaps in quite as much like danger as you might actually be as like a woman alone as like a young woman alone in an alehouse potentially where people yeah. would 
make certain assumptions about you and perhaps act on and perhaps act on those, but that it certainly, even for an older woman, would have been considered perhaps not not entirely respectable. Yeah. And at one point William Leith like asks her, like, are you married? And she's like, No. And she's like, and he's like, Oh, well, that's not good. Like, do you have any kids? And and she's like, None of my own. <laughs> which is yeah. which is a very teacher thing. A very teacher yeah. thing to say. I love it. Right. But, I also believe like, she also like, like adds on a number of occasions that she like goes to like student parties and gets drunk. Yeah. And like all the casual misogyny that's being bandied around in the tavern, and she's like you know, I've I've seen worse. The class of seventy four, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Which is a nice acknowledgement of the fact that, like, you know, the progression of rights and tolerance is not linear, right, at all. Right, absolutely. Um, she's like, I have seen worse in the twentieth century. You can't right, shock yeah. me. Yeah, so that I do like. I do like that she is just like utterly unfazed by the uh, the dynamic that she experiences, and that there is this sense, right, that like this is not worse than mm-hmm. being, you know, a woman on, you know, an unmarried woman in a number of kinds of like spaces that you could be in, like alone as a woman, in like probably is basically surrounded by men in the you know mid twentieth century. Yep. Uh, so I do, I do like that. Yeah, and she does, and she does uh, go out drinking with her students. She mentions at one yes. point, like. Uh, this is like at one point, like when she's like first starting to like fade in and out and she's got the migraine, she's like, I feel worse than no, I haven't felt this bad since the yard of ale race, but between the yes. students and faculty and, and, and the doctor's like, Oh, who won that? And she's like the yard of ale. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> she also has uh, lock picking skills, which she has developed specifically because uh, that is how she gets back into the college after hours when she's gone to a student party. <laughs> yes. She's like, oh, the porters don't like to be woken up in the middle of the night. I just get myself in. <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> uh, and he's and, like, she she busts out these skills when they're, when they're trying to escape the tower. And, he, and he's like, okay, those would be useful, except... Uh, the door is barred. <laughs> it is a staple right. and toggle lock. I don't think your lock, your lock picking skills are going to be much good against yeah, it. Which, fair. Evelyn is also, I'll note, uh, correct about Coco as not being particularly easy to come by in 16th century England. So at this point, Spanish elites would already have been drinking hot cocoa. Of course, you know, different in various ways from modern hot cocoa, but, you know, some form of hot chocolate beverage. However, even though Mary is married to Philip II, the Spanish she don't seem to have been particularly interested at this stage quite yet in uh, exporting cocoa or introducing it to England. Uh, who, who knows if that marriage had, had lasted, perhaps that would have gone a bit differently. But as it is, according to what I was coming across, it seems like chocolate was probably really introduced to England around 1600. And the first English chocolate house opened in 1657. So especially if you're talking about some like crow or leaf, they would, especially that chocolate was very much until the opening of these chocolate houses, chocolate very much was a pretty much exclusively elite beverage. So Mm -hmm. even if maybe there was some possibility that, you know, Mary might have tried chocolate, it's very unlikely that chocolate would have been at all familiar to somebody of lower social stature at this stage. Yeah. But William Leaf quite takes to it. Oh, yeah, which is fair. Good for him. And Crow is like, I'm getting at a beer. I'm not into yeah, this stuff. Like, he's like, this, this, is a, this is a children's drink. It's, it's, it's all sweet. Right. 
Right. Which I'm going to go get an ale, and that's and that's where he gets the uh, the message that uh, they're looking for right. Evelyn. So right. The doctor, however, is actually right that Evelyn's cardigan might have stuck out. And I did decide to uh, sit down and look up the history of the cardigan. I will say this is just from Wikipedia. So, uh, you know, take it perhaps with a grain of salt because I wasn't doing that much research on cardigans. But that uh, at least the cardigan allegedly is named after James Brunel, the seventh Earl of Cardigan, who is a general in the British Army. Uh, who led the charge of the Light Brigade at the 1854 Battle of Balaclava during the oh. Crimean War. Oh, that guy. The, the guy who the poet Earl was of Cardigan. About. Sure. Earl of Cardigan. And allegedly, or, you know, this is, this is the legend, is that there's this, like, knitted wool waistcoat that British officers wore that has tails, and Lord Cardigan was standing in front a little too close to a fire and the ah. tails of his wool waistcoat were, were burned off and uh, that this supposedly is the invention of the cardigan. That's amazing. I love it. So I hope it does not true. sound It does not sound true, but it sounds oh, no. amazing. I hope it's true. I kind of doubt it. Um, regardless, I think we can pretty confidently say that indeed a cardigan would perhaps, if anybody, you know, was in fact paying attention to these sort of things, perhaps would have seemed out of place in mm-hmm. 1555. Yeah. And and the doctor, the doctor like is, is like explaining what it is to some, because he says to Lady Sarah, it's like, she'll be an older lady wearing a cardigan. And, and and Lady Sarah's like, what's a cardigan? And he's like, it's sort of a woolen jacket. She has no sense of style. I told her not to wear it. <laughs> and that's even better when you imagine he's standing there wearing the, like, Technicolor nightmare coat. Oh, yes. And he's like, she has no sense of style. And it's like, uh-huh. Got it. Okay. <laughs> sure. Uh-huh. Totally. <laughs> I, I appreciate your opinions on this. <laughs> on other people's style. Oh, it's amazing. And then the final couple of things that I wanted to talk about before the Historia et Veritas are a couple of uh, real things that this particular serial is drawing on. Uh, John, John Whiteside Smith is uh, invented, I believe, for the uh, the purposes of all That's, this. That sounds right. Yeah. That, that I, I Googling have... him, I did not come across uh, things other than references to Doctor Who. So Fair. He is, uh, you know, not entirely surprisingly invented for the purposes of all of this. But of course, there are some real, some characters who are real people. The main one, of course, I mean, Mary, obviously. This particular episode is, in fact, drawing on the fact that Mary, indeed, uh, was known to have had a few of these false pregnancies, including one in 1554 to 1555, uh, as well as another shortly before her death. Mm -hmm. So basically that she has a number of symptoms which she and her doctors attribute to pregnancy, that she visibly looks pregnant, she stops menstruating, she experiences nausea and other aches and pains. This is probably some combination of psychological symptoms, menopause, and illness. She dies eventually of what is like very possibly uterine cancer. So probably a number of uh, perhaps combining issues here. Yeah. And she she even like points out that like, she, she's like, I'm getting old, doctor. I'm almost 39. 
Which, right, which is of course not an unheard of age. That's actually how old my mother was when I was born. It's of course not an unheard of age at which to have children, but certainly not in the mid 16th century, the age yeah. that people would have considered standard. And 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 she and she says, uh, "How many?" She, she asks the doctor, "Like, how many women do you know who have survived their first pregnancy at, at my age?" And 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 he's like, "Many, Your Majesty, many." And she's like, "Thank you for trying to comfort me, but like." Yeah. I'm not hopeful. <laughs> right, right. She also will note that uh, actually, if uh, if we were being precisely historically accurate, we would perhaps note that uh, Elizabeth is actually about to be brought to court. She's uh, she is invited to court in April to witness the birth, and actually stays there for a few months. Uh, there, there is, however, not in fact a birth. Uh, the the baby would right. have been born would have been due in around April. It doesn't happen. And there are a number of, you know, even before that, there are already some amount of rumors circulating. Philip seems doubtful about whether she is actually pregnant. He mm-hmm. doesn't seem to quite buy into this entirely. And also one of Mary's lady ladies-in-waiting, in fact, reported to the French ambassador that she did also didn't buy it, that she did not think that Mary was actually pregnant. And this French ambassador is Antoine de Noailles, the brother of our good friend Francois de Noailles, who is, uh, of course, a prominent figure in this particular serial. Yes. So this is a period where his brother is the French ambassador, and Francois himself will eventually become a, you know, a diplomat as well. At this stage, he's, uh, he's in England, it seems like, just kind of visiting. But this is actually, he does not have a formal diplomatic position there, and also actually is not bishop as of yet. He does not uh, become a bishop until 58, which is Bishop of Dux, which is not the same as Ox, which, you know, we talked about a bit earlier. It's close. Uh, Close enough, uh, but he does not actually become bishop until 1556. So he's a clergyman, but not, in fact, uh, a bishop, technically, at quite this stage. They they were close. They were quite Close. close. Yeah. The other thing, I I could not actually find a ton about him and uh, gave up at some point. So if anybody else happens to like know more about him, please share. But the other fun thing that I found out is that he was reputed uh, to be a bit sympathetic toward the Huguenots or the, uh, the French Protestants. He certainly presented here, right, as at least caring a lot more about politics than he really does about the Catholic Protestant divide. And that's something that very possibly was was true as well, that he was, you know, invested okay. in having some amount of kind of support for these figures, even if he remained a Catholic himself. Speaking of Huguenots, I don't suppose you can ca- recall off the top of your head, uh, when was the uh, St. Bartholomew's Day massacre? I want to say 1568, and now I'm going to look and see if I'm right. Okay. I bring it up because, of course, we have covered all of the existing medieval set Doctor Who classic serials, but there were, like, a few that have, like, the tapes were lost due to, like, poor storage conditions, etc., and one of the ones that, uh, that was lost is called The Massacre, which is about the St. Bartholomew's Day Oh, which is uh, 1572 as the, uh, the precise year on that, so I was okay. in, in the so, ballpark, but not, so, uh, not quite yeah, there. But that's, like, quite Close to this, really. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, this is absolutely a period, right, in which France is obviously also experiencing its own uh, religious tensions, uh, which, of course, that will be the most um, dramatic, you know, form of that. But Oh, yes. 
Yeah. So interesting. And that actually also is a good lead into what I wanted to talk about for the Historia at Veritas, which is the history of Mary and Elizabeth and specifically religious persecution. Since we begin with having, uh, you know, Evelyn will ultimately, uh, as we've said, uh, find her ancestors a bit disappointing, but she begins with both uh, having a lot of pride in her ancestor who's at the court of Elizabeth, but also really having a really strong sense of a distinction between Elizabeth and Mary. And says, in fact, that Elizabeth didn't let personal views get in the way of ruling well, and very much sees Elizabeth as being, I would say, the much kind of more ethical figure that she very much emphasizes Mary's role in the persecution of Protestant, quote, heretics, and contrasts Elizabeth with that. Yes, which which is kind of, I mean, it is in line with the general popular perception of mary and elizabeth although as a historian evelyn you should be a little more nuanced maybe (laughs) and that's exactly what i wanted to talk about that evelyn's uh, contrast between elizabeth and mary is something that yeah absolutely is very much the popular view but i would say even in 2000 yeah is not quite what i would expect from a professional tutor historian And I also found interesting, and the other thing on that note that I was sort of surprised by is that she, or that I was a little disappointed by, I guess, was that Evelyn seemed quite taken aback at the fact that when she was talking to the assorted Protestants, that they're not against burning heretics. They're just only in favor of burning the people that they think are heretics, as opposed to the people that the Catholics think are heretics, who are them. Yeah, it's like, we don't. We don't mind the burning of heretics. I mean, burning's too good for actual heretics. The only problem is they're trying to say that we right-thinking people are heretics, and that's the problem. And there's nothing wrong with a good burning at the stake. It's a fun afternoon out with the kids. Yep. <laughs> and Evelyn, who's like, that's a horrible way to go. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Right, which is, of course, a perfectly reasonable position for Evelyn to have, but um, I'm a little disappointed by how surprised she is by the fact that that is a position held by these uh, Protestant people in this period. Because, of course, you know, we, we hear a lot, right, about the Catholics burning Protestants, but, of course, the reverse happened as well. Mary is, of course, famously linked with the burning of Protestant, quote, heretics. So essentially, just as a quick reminder of the basic uh, historical context for anyone not familiar, Henry VIII uh, broke with the Pope in order to marry Anne Boleyn, who is Elizabeth's mother. He, you know, introduced what essentially is basically kind of Catholicism without the Pope. Yeah, it's like, uh, we're going to have the Catholic Church, but instead of the Pope at the head, it's going to be me, King Henry VIII. Right. But, you know, and also did things like, you know, dissolve the monasteries, which is in part a money grab, etc. Uh-huh. But his, the last of his six wives, Catherine Parr, was very much a, like, devout, actual yes. Protestant and raised... Which is why uh, he almost killed her and then decided against it. Yeah. With, but she, but she, like, was able to have enough of a, like a influence on the raising of Elizabeth and also Edward the Sixth to raise them to be actual Protestants. Who it's like, right? As as Eddie Izzard like describes it, like a uh, 
King Henry bro- broke from the Catholics to to get a divorce. King Edward and Queen Elizabeth like saw these uh saw Protestantism and they're like, oh thank God, some principles to stick in our new church. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So yeah. So and Edward and yeah, and you know, and Edward, you know, when he becomes king, so that is of course the son of Henry's third wife, Jane Seymour. He mm-hmm. becomes king, and he is very like, ah, yes, great Protestantism. Let's have a uh-huh. let's have a real new religion as opposed to just Catholicism minus the Pope. Uh-huh. And and among other things, right? We have the kind of big emphasis on the fact that you know priests they they can get married. That's a that's a big thing. Yeah, and he and he also uh, tries to go out of his way to like it's like okay, we don't want the Catholics back now that we've got this new Protestant church. So right. he goes out of his way to try and disinherit Mary, and yes. by extension, like he also disinherits Elizabeth because he can't figure out a way to do one without the other. Right, which and so he. I'm not actually 100 do- percent sure it makes sense, but it, I mean it's a whole weird thing. But well, it's like it's like if if Mary is. If he's trying to, if Mary's illegitimate, illegitimate, yeah, then then Elizabeth must also be illegitimate by the same logic, yeah. And so he tries to declare his cousin Jane the heir, right? Which is of course Um, why we have the very very brief reign of Lady Jane Grey. The very brief, uh, very brief, nine days. Yeah, Edward. Like at the start of his reign, everyone's like Edward's going to have a long life, but then uh. He comes to the throne. Then you at age look at nine. Edward, and you're like, "Oh, he's not going to have a long life, is he?" He's he's a he's a he's a sickly boy, and he dies at the age of fifteen. And then Jane is crowned on July 10, 1555, and then is forcibly deposed by Mary uh, at, on July nineteenth of fifteen fifty three. Right, and in fact, this is. I, I would say this is overall quite popular because even a lot of the fervent Protestants are a little eh, about disinheriting the two daughters of Henry VIII. And, yeah, you know, and like, they're kind of like, well, if you allow one being legitimate, they're kind of both legitimate and Mary's the older one. Yeah, so like, okay. And and also uh, the fact that like Henry set up like a line of succession. It's like, okay, when I die, it'll go to Edward because he's the son. That makes sense. And after Edward, then there's Mary and Elizabeth, who are my daughters, because that is how that works. Mm-hmm. And then it'll go down, like, Jane's Assorted cousins, line. yeah. But but I think part of the problem was, like, Henry's wishes were ratified by Parliament, and Edward's edits were not. Right. Right. So, you know, that's a problem. And as I said also, I would say kind of on a popular level, the idea of, like, ditching Henry's perfectly alive and well daughters for this other person who is also a lot of people are like, excited about that and, and like Mary and Elizabeth are adults Jane is yeah. Edward's age yeah Mary becomes queen of course so you know restores a number of things associated with Catholicism priests no longer can get married she actually reintroduces some monasteries into England which will eventually also get shut down again and she, so she has this phantom pregnancy and, you know, it doesn't go very well. Eventually she says, I wonder if this not working out is like punishment for uh, me being so tolerant of yeah. the, uh, of all those Protestants. Yes, that is, yep. That's so, clearly the problem. That's, that's yep. the problem. Yep. And this then is especially a good excuse to execute some protestants Mm -hmm. as it happens 
So she executes, uh, I believe, 283 Protestants for heresy in February of 1555, uh, which will include, among other people, the Archbishop of Canterbury basically uh, brought in because he essentially was was cool with breaking with the Catholic Church at Thomas Cranmer, yep. who is actually, so he gets kind of bullied into recanting. He then right. is forced to watch as his two bishop buddies, Ridley and Latimer, are executed. Then, you know, is told at some point in this, like, even though you recanted, where we are still absolutely burning you at the stake. And he very dramatically, like, while that's happening, like, unrecants. I love it. You, yeah. you gotta love it. Yeah. Not entirely. Surprisingly, the Protestants do indeed praise as martyrs uh, some of these individuals executed uh, as Protestants by Mary. Mm-hmm. They, they they bring up martyrdom in the in the episode, like uh, George Crow and William Leaf are sitting in their cell in the tower, and it's like, and George Crow's like, hey, we'll probably be remembered as martyrs, and uh, like, and and William Leaf's like, what's a martyr? And George Crow's like, well, they're people who who like could have been catholic like the queen said but they but they chose to be burned instead and so they and and that'll make people say oh that protestantism must be real good if people are willing to be burned for it and then, right and, and, and william lee's like but i don't want to be burned <laughs> he's like i would rather though be not dead though yeah i would and, and then, i have that one it's like it's like i will Will an angel come and rescue us? And then the TARDIS appears in their cell. And evil yes, steps and evil comes out. The and real angel. Like, yeah, and and mm. Evelyn's like, I would rescue you. I would rescue you all if I could. And I and know. the doctor's like, Evelyn, you know we can't. It's like we can't, we can't do that. We, we absolutely can't do, can't do that. And she's like, I know, but yeah. This is sort of a recurring theme. Like, uh, the doctor's like, we can't save people because history has to go as history does. And, and the companion's like, well, what if we, we just saved, like, two or three people? Right. So that, like, and, of course, you know, it's like, well, actually, like, that could be a problem. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it could be, but generally it's like, it's like you know, these little changes, small mercies sort of a thing. Ooh, right. These small things. And also, I feel like, I don't know, the implication is like, actually, maybe we were really supposed to do this and, you know, yeah. all that. So it, it works out. Presumably, we didn't like, I don't know, create like double Hitler or something. No. Crow would least survive. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, so then Elizabeth becomes queen. And initially, I would say Elizabeth operates, I would say, with some amount of caution and is, in fact, when we're talking about the kind of first decade or so of her reign, is relatively tolerant. There are, however, Catholics that aren't happy. And the biggest, I would say, kind of one of the big points of transition comes when Pope Pius V in 1570 issues a papal bull, that's the special pope name for a decree, is a bull, the Regulus in Excelsis, which is basically a kind of papal declaration of war that essentially he basically says like, she's a heretic and she sucks. So it's cool if you, like, you don't have to owe allegiance to her as a Catholic. It's cool if you try to depose her, if you revolt against her, essentially. Like, that's a fine thing, religiously speaking, for you to do as a Catholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
things essentially at this point deteriorate quite a bit in terms of Elizabeth's relationship with English Catholics. It also, by the way, doesn't help that uh, England's relationship with Catholic Spain is also uh, simultaneously deteriorating, you know, 1588, Spanish Armada, etc. Yeah, yeah. So we have, uh, for example, things like higher fines instituted for missing church. So the kind of thing that if you're talking about a kind of ordinary person could be really pretty much prohibitive. The public performance of Catholic sacraments also is banned. So effectively, Catholicism is basically driven underground. And she also Mm -hmm. bans basically uh, priests who are ordained abroad. Uh, that that is considered, you know, that anybody ordained that, you know, if you if you happen to, I guess, like be old enough that you, you know, were ordained as a Catholic priest under Mary, then like, that's okay. But it's considered to be like un-English to have uh, gone abroad to have gotten ordained. I mean, that tracks, that sounds, that sounds like the English. Yeah, about 130 priests, so mostly priests who are ordained abroad and who are facilitating, you know, the secret practice of Catholicism are executed, as are about 60 uh, uh, lay people who are supporters and who uh, are often actively involved in uh, hiding these uh, Catholic priests who have come into the country. And this, of course, includes just those who are actually executed for basically just being Catholic or for practicing Catholicism. There's obviously a larger number of people who are executed for participating in treasonous plots that are justified by their Catholicism. That uh, falls mm-hmm. into a different category. Yeah. Um, and it's also, you know, not that I'm pro-execution, but is more understandable as, you know, receiving some sort of penalty, certainly. But Elizabeth does, you know, like as we're kind of moving into this stage after this 1570 people bull, Elizabeth is also very much involved in, you know, what is clearly religious persecution. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's just uh, the other direction now. Mm-hmm. So, and this, I would say, very, very much kind of worth noting, but I think still, especially in the United States, we still kind of have, I would say, a lot of kind of very negative attitudes toward Catholicism. Uh, you know, we are a majority Protestant country. There's actually, you know, in, uh, I think when JFK became president, there were people claiming like, oh, he really shouldn't be able to be president because we can't trust that he won't just like do what the Pope says. That's Um, correct. Which for some reason never comes up with evangelical megachurches, but whatever. Um, But, you know, that's fine. Uh, (laughs) You know, and that I've certainly like have taught courses where I've had students who are very, very quick to say, oh, anything bad that you're saying about, you know, things that at some point Christians did, that's what Catholics do. That's a Catholic Mm -hmm. thing. And I think it is very important as you are studying early modern history to recognize in general that... uh, there's not really a, like, Protestants are so much nicer than Catholics. That's not really how it works. That no. Catholics and Protestants are both uh, very much actively participating in religious violence against one another, against Jews, against, well, I mean, you know, a different, a slightly different category, but of course, witch persecution as well. It's not like the Protestants are all uh, warm and fuzzy. And yeah, that is certainly no. also the case with Queen Elizabeth, that I would say there is a little bit more of this kind of political dimension in terms of the Pope really being kind of actively Elizabeth's political enemy in a way that, I mean, just there's not a parallel for like Protestantism in quite the same way. Yeah. But nevertheless, I think you certainly can't talk about 
you know, Mary persecuted Catholics and Elizabeth is like a lovely person who never let her, you know, religious beliefs get in the way of the way she ruled. Right. Yeah, this different factions of Christians, like, violently fighting each other over, over like, differences in small areas of belief is, is a trend that goes all the way back to the Council of Nicaea. Like, this is not Ooh, a new thing. Yes. This, this is not... This is not something that's ended. Oh, no, no. Christians, Christians love doing this thing. Yep. Religious violence does, does not go only one direction, everybody. No, Important thing to know. And of course, you know that when we're looking at, you know, the totality of the early modern period, it is essentially just completely, essentially characterized by kind of near constant interreligious warfare between Catholics and Protestants. Yep. I've been listening to uh, Robin Pearson's The History of Byzantium Mm. recently, and the ongoing conflict between the Orthodox Church and the Monophysites Mm -hmm. only stops really getting focus when the iconoclasts show up and become the new Mm. conflict. And you've got a different one, yeah. Also, it's a great fun fact... So the, you know, the period I study, I work on uh, 13th to 15th century Western Mediterranean stuff. So you can't have, if you're, if you're a Christian polity, if, so, if you had a slave and that slave was baptized, you could still keep them as a slave, but you can't enslave a Christian, except Eastern Christians, they don't count as real Christians. So uh, it's cool if you want to enslave them. That, yeah, that sounds about right. Yep. I mean... They're Orthodox. It doesn't count. Yeah. Yeah. No. So we have like a lot of like, yeah, like Greek Christian, like they're described in the text as like Greek Christian. Uh, yeah. Like, the, I mean, who is less legitimate, the Orthodox or the Protestants? Right. Right. So, you know, yeah, we've got, we've got this very long history of, uh, you know, you're the wrong kind of Christian, uh, you know, yeah. in terms of that's also obviously the case with, right, like, a lot of the, the you know, heresy accusations that we have over the course of the Middle Ages that, you know, there's arguments that I don't need to get into here about which of them are, you know, quote, proto-Protestant. All I'll say about that is that, you know, Martin Luther didn't, you know, make everything up out of nothing. He, you know, had, he didn't have predecessors but but that you know it is con- there are these essentially kind of constant arguments where it's like it's not that people aren't christian it's that they kind of disagree about how to be christian exactly um, so there's a lot of intra-christian violence between basically yeah. people who disagree about what being christian actually looks like yeah like early on like the roman emperors are like okay one empire one church we're gonna find a formulation that works for everybody and 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 so there's there's several centuries of like the emperors trying to come up with like compromise formulations that'll appeal to everyone, and like both sides right. are like, we are not interested in compromise. That right. therein lies the problem. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's also you know the the 11th century, you know that being the formal schism between the Eastern and Western churches. There had been but, kind of divisions uh, yeah, long before been- that. They had been drifting away for centuries, like yeah, ever since um, ever since ever since the Roman Empire, which was which ended up being like the Orthodox 
no longer controlled the city of Rome, which is where the Catholic Pope is. Like they they started just like drifting away because like the emperor right. is like we Christianity is this thing and the Pope's like you're not the boss of me anymore, right? And you know so like we already have that right like relatively early and you know and every now and then over the course of the Middle Ages there'll be kind of brief like maybe we could get back together but you know they it's like it always hinges right and there being some sort of compromise and there's never action like nobody ever actually wants to compromise exactly religious persecution. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> yes. Everybody's if you have any power, you're doing every, it. Everybody's do, doing it except for the Andalusian Muslims. Except, well, except for the, uh, when you get into like the Almohads. But yeah, like as, like, as well, people yes. know, right? Like, except for the Umayyad Andalusian Muslims. Right. Right, yeah, that they're at least doing it, like, a lot less than anybody else. Like, you know, right. the only people they're executing, you know, they're executing the people only because it's, like, the one thing we fucking told you to do is not run out in the streets and say mean things about Muhammad. That's, like, the one thing, guys. Yeah. Uh, so, like, they execute the people who, like, did that one thing that they're, like, come on, come on. Knock it off. Please stop. <laughs> right. And I guess, you know, the Jews aren't doing a lot of religious persecution, but that's just because they don't have any power. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, religious persecution. A fun thing for everybody, Uh I guess. Bring your kids. It's a fun evening for the whole family. Bring your kids. (laughs) So, with that... We're burning tonight. Mm. So, with that, and this actually, uh, mindfully, it kind of connects, actually, to maybe some of the things that have come up. The Fabula Nostra section is where we talk about an alternative story perhaps inspired by this one my thought was just that in in my never-ending quest to have fewer pieces of media about England I was inspired by essentially this idea right that there are a number of particular moments in time where you know getting wrong exactly who's in charge could potentially like go really really badly for you so the version of that that I would like to see is that we can have Evelyn perhaps being curious to experience the Byzantine Empire. And they decide, okay, we're going to go to the Byzantine Empire. But the TARDIS, as it is wont to do, <laughs> screws up just a bit and takes them to 1204 shortly after the Fourth Crusade and the Venetian conquest of Constantinople. And uh, some amount of hijinks ensue as uh, there is the people who are in charge are not the people that they anticipated are in charge. The period of the so-called Latin Empire. Yes. Yes. I can see that going poorly. Um, yeah. I actually came up with two fabula nostras. Mm. One... One inspired when I was listening to the episode, and the other when I was reading your notes about what your Fabula <laughs> Nostra was. The first one is, at a couple points, like, we already mentioned, like, the very brief nine-day reign of Queen Jane. And the Doctor, at a couple point mentions, like, oh, I've met, I knew Queen Jane. I met Queen Jane. I probably shouldn't bring that up to Mary. It'll probably upset <laughs> her. And so, like, I want that story. I want the story of, like, the Doctor meeting Queen Jane and all of the very turbulent drama surrounding her Mm. very brief, like, ascent, rise, fall within two weeks. And I want that story. But the other one I had, again, going off your uh, getting the religion of the people in power wrong, like, they show up in 
the Roman Empire in Constantinople in the fourth century. And they're like, oh, well, now it's after Constantine, like the, the, uh, the empire is Christian now. So we should probably try mm-hmm. to blend in with all these Roman Christians. One thing leads to another. They meet the emperor. And it is, of course, that very, that most wise and pious of emperors, Julian the Apostate. Yes! Love it. The the one who is like, no, this Christianity is wrong. We need to go back to the old pagan ways. Uh, Fantastic. I'd love to say that. Yeah. So those those are my two ideas. But I think this uh, kind of indicates that, however, that we did both uh, enjoy this serial and, you know, want something perhaps in addition to instead of instead of it, which leads into the estimatio or rating section. And I will say uh, I'm going to give this a 4.5. I think it does a pretty good job on historical accuracy. I am docking it slightly for... The fact that while I do think it does an interesting job of making Mary more sympathetic, I don't think it actually really challenges the kind of like hero worship of Elizabeth exactly. Although it does have our other like Protestant, I mean, Elizabeth is just like miss like, you know, lady not appearing in this film, Um, which is sort of deliberate, I think in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those um, like, you're worried that this character will overshadow the people that the story is actually about. Right, right. Kind of, so because it's, of that, it, yeah. It's it's uh, also kind of why, like, in, in Broadway, uh, Broadway slash American Revolution history, like, the character of John Adams in 1776 yes. was so, like iconic that that is why Lin-Manuel Miranda left it's John just like Adams. we just can't do it yeah we, we there is just like the one John Adams I know yeah just like the Hamilton. one line which I just love that we have uh Hamilton's response uh sit down John you fat motherfucker <laughs> yes <laughs> love it love it <laughs> like and then he actually, actually states you know sit down John uh like in 1776 it's great great choice yeah, exactly <laughs> and so so that's why they don't have Elizabeth yeah because the story the story's about mary yeah which yeah which absolutely makes sense but i think you know it's that just i mean i think they could have potentially done i think potentially i don't know they could have kind of stuck in something to maybe kind of at least slightly deconstruct the uh kind of you know the very positive image that you i think are still sort of left with in a lot of ways of elizabeth there is just like a little bit of that where the where like evelyn's like oh Elizabeth was the best, and the doctor's like, really? Really? Yeah. <laughs> but Yeah, so I sort of wish that, you know, so, so I'm docking it a tiny bit for that, and I'm docking it a tiny bit for just the missed opportunity that I think it would have been really interesting if there had been, like, a conversation around, like, Evelyn as being a woman alone in a space like a tavern. I think that actually would have been, like, I think that actually could have been an interesting extra few minutes to add to that scene but overall i really enjoyed this and uh i as i said evelyn is my absolute hero and i adore her yeah for those of you who are like new to this podcast sarah never gives out fives (laughs) like no i've given a five to like two things so 4.5 is high praise (laughs) that's that's about as that's about as good as as good as i get there Like, Lord of the Rings got a five. Yeah, which it has to. But I am slightly more generous, and I will give this a five. Fair. 
again, my only complaint at all is is like you said, the the sort of like hero worship of Elizabeth is like the greatest ruler of the greatest female ruler of modern times, and the doctor's like, really, really, mm. the the greatest. Um, okay, mm. uh, could probably right. name a few other alternate examples, but. Uh, we're not having this fight right now. You are fading right. out of existence, and that is a more pressing matter. Fair <laughs> enough, I guess. Yeah. But otherwise, like, yeah, no, I I love everything about this. So when we covered Battlefield, I said that Seven and Ace were my favorite, like, duo of characters to fly in the TARDIS. And since I started listening to the audio dramas since then, they have been bumped down to third place. After Six and Evelyn, and then also the Eighth Doctor and Charlie, who you'll meet someday. Okay. (laughs) I have, to peel back the curtain a little, I have a very, I have this big Google Doc full of, like, every Doctor Who serial episode, like, audio drama set between the 5th and 17th centuries, which is because our, because this podcast is a fairly broad scope and interpretation. You take of a long is, view of the Middle Ages. Yeah, well, Sarah allows as late as the 17th century so she can pick apart three Musketeers adaptations. Um, yes. Which, a bit of foreshadowing for our next episode... Our, the next one we're going to be reviewing is The Church and the Crown, which is Doctor Who's mm. take on The Three Musketeers. Oh, interesting. So uh, I look forward to that. Yeah, it's fun. But that's not what we're reviewing here today. We, uh, right. I give I give The Marian Conspiracy a five out of five. I love The Doctor. I love Evelyn. The Sixth Doctor, honestly, like, it was during, like, his time, like, on screen that, like, kind of the writing issues that started to bring the show down were at their worst and so mm-hmm. like six for just for his time on screen is not very fondly remembered because like the episodes were eh, kind of bad mm-hmm. but it is in the audio dramas that he really gets a chance to shine and we get to see yeah. oh colin baker can act when he is given good material <laughs> Right, right. No, and I thought he was great, and I really liked his dynamic with Evelyn. The The other thing I will say is that it's, it's weird, it's very common that there's essentially, a, okay, a lot of the time when you have an older woman, like a woman in her 50s who is a character, I feel like there's often a lot of things where there's like a lot of jokes about like basically just like how like, wow, this woman is like so unfuckable. Why would anybody want to be within 20 feet of her? And I really like that. That is never the dynamic. And like she and the doctor sort of make fun of each other. And there's nothing romantic, but the doctor also seems like he's not interested in anything romantic. Uh, And Evelyn, it seems like it's just not her priority, at least, uh, which is very relatable, once again. And also, like, we don't get the, like, sort of, like, oh, she's so old, no one would ever be interested in her, because William Leaf kind of has a crush. He kind of has a crush, which is kind of cool, because he's clearly, like, a lot younger. Yeah, And I feel like like there's an implication that, like... Not that anything inappropriate necessarily happened, but like I'm like I bet her, I bet she has students who are who like absolutely have a crush on her, and that's why she keeps getting invited to these like weird parties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and also she's just fun. 
She's yeah. just fun. Yeah, she's so fun. I want to have a party. I want to go to a party with her. Yeah, and I believe of the Doctor's human companions, and I do have to specify human, but of the Doctor's human companions, I believe she is the second oldest in the entire history mm. of everything. The only one older is uh, Wilfred Mott, who was briefly a companion of the 10th Doctor. He is the grandfather of, of 10th Doctor companion Donna Noble. Mm. who is a more, like, established companion. But, like, Wilf gets to go on a couple adventures with him, too, okay. towards the end of the run. And so it's, like, this old grandpa who's, like... He's one of those old grandpas who, like, was who was always, like, out looking at his... T- through his telescope. It's like, there's aliens mm-hmm. up there. I know it. And, and everyone's like, okay, grandpa. But then, like, Donna <laughs> meets the doctor right. and, is like, and is like, yeah, actually, there are aliens out there and yeah. Wilf gets to meet him and he's like and he's like it's 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 a pleasure to meet you Mr. Alien it's it's so <laughs> nice that's great but yeah but aside from Wilf like Evelyn is I believe the oldest like mm. full-time human companion and I do have yeah. to specify human because the doctor has traveled with a couple of time lords and time lords you right. know have a life expectancy of many centuries. Right. Um, so different different category. But yeah, and you know, and there's there's not a ton in general of like representation actually of like women over 40. Yeah. So and, and, pretty and so awesome. Eve, Evelyn at a at an explicitly stated 55 is yeah. I mean the reason that most companions are younger is because there's a lot of running about in in adventures with right. the doctor. Um, right and and Evelyn's like my knees uh, and and the mm-hmm. doctor's like really it's usually ankles <laughs> but still you know I like she uh she does a better job than the doctor like jumping over the riverbank yeah so they, yeah we 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 kind of glossed over that little yeah bit, but when they when they escape the tower it's like okay how are we going to get to the palace it's like how are you on a horse not that great C- can you run it's like my knees will give me trouble uh, but Really? It's usually ankles. Okay, how about seasickness? We're nowhere near the sea. Okay, boat sickness then. Oh, the Thames. Yeah, we'll do that. And so they they hop a barge to get to the palace. Right. And, then, and then Evelyn makes the jump to the bank. Not not gracefully, but she makes it. She makes so, which it. Is, which is better than the doctor who, go, who goes face first into the drain. Right, and he makes fun of her, and then he does it, and then he yeah, goes face first in. And, so it's and, pretty and, good. And, then she's, and then she's like, do you, do you know how polluted the Thames is at this point in time? And the doctor's like, can 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 you give me a hand instead of a, instead of a history lecture? It's like, no, absolutely not. No. And, <laughs> and, and, and she's like, yeah, it's fair, okay. And she helps him out. I mean, why not both? Why not both, though? <laughs> this is, I thought, pretty great. I, I highly recommend checking it out. So, yeah, and you can find it on uh, on Big Finish. I had to I had to pay for it, but it costs, like, $3. There's, like, a, you know, app that, you know, the app itself is free for you to then, uh, you know, listen on your phone. So, check yeah. it out. The bulk of the paying that I've been doing for, like, my entertainment recently has been Big Finish Doctor Who audios. <laughs> Because mm-hmm. otherwise, I have the the public library, like right, yeah, and also yeah. my my roommate's Disney Plus account, which mm. almost everything that I've been watching, not for this podcast of late, has been Star Wars cartoons, mm. um, which are very good. Highly recommend mm. them. They do not fit the scope of this podcast. Um, no, <laughs> but aside from that, like like everything I've been consuming that's not 
podcasts or Star Wars cartoons has been for this podcast. I mean, same. Uh, I mean, and I'm counting, like, I mean, I've been listening to a lot of Big Finish Doctor Who, even the stuff that's not medieval, because it's all good. It Most of it's good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Necromantea was not good. Minuet in Hell is questionable, but most of it's good. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I definitely am going to, I'm going to like find more evil and uh, focused ones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can give I... you like a quick list of those. Excellent. Um, wow. You listening to Doctor Who that's not medieval? Yeah. Shocking. Yeah. Especially like, you know, I, I can, I can listen to this while, uh, while I walk the dog. It's great. Mm-hmm. I listen, I listen to this while I'm sanding wood at work. Like, yeah. Yeah. And cooking also, I listen to, I listen to a lot of, like, podcasts usually when, uh, yeah, when cooking, so. Bake a, bake a chocolate cake while listening to Evelyn and the Doctor getting Yeah, the yeah, um, exactly. Actually, your next, uh, your next, if, if you go chronologically with Evelyn, the way the Big Finish Doctor Who is structured, it does tend to jump around timeline-wise a lot because they are, mm-hmm. because they have the actors for, like, the last four classic Doctors. Uh-huh. Um, and so it jumps between them a lot. Generally, the timelines are consistent per companion. Okay. So like, so like, audios with Six and Perry will be before audios with Six and Evelyn. But mm-hmm. like, if you've listened to the audios with Six and Evelyn, they will go in order with her. Uh-huh. And it's possible to like, s- see where they slot into the overall classic series timeline. Like mm-hmm. these, ha- like it's like, oh, this is an I- adventure with five and Nissa. It must take place before this one with five and Turlo. Right, right. But like, if it's just five and Nissa, you know, it comes between Time Flight and Arc of Infinity. Time Flight is the one where they leave Tegan at Heathrow, and Arc of Infinity is when they pick Tegan up again in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas anything that's just five and Turlo has to be like after Tegan leaves in Resurrection of the Daleks, but before Turlo leaves in Planet of Fire. Mm -hmm. And anything with Five and Perry has to be between Planet of Fire, where the Doctor picks up Perry, and the Caves of Androzani, which is when the Doctor regenerates. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of, like, audio dramas that like fill in those gaps because... Right, yeah. with, with, With Five in particular... It took them several years to convince Janet Fielding to do any audios, and that leaves them mm-hmm. very few windows because Tegan was yeah. there like almost yeah. that entire time. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that that definitely makes it harder. But yeah. Um, so check this out. Yeah. It's, so it's quite yeah. good. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me once again. Where could the listeners find you on the internet? Let's see. I. I have a Twitter. I don't tweet much, but I'm at Lizzie Strider. If you want to find me there, it's not that interesting because I don't tweet much. More, more prominently, I think I finally broke and got a Tumblr again. So I am, I am shadow academic on Tumblr. Okay. And I also not infrequently appear on a little podcast called Media Evil. You may have heard <laughs> of it. Um, and I'm also like, fairly active in the media evil facebook group too so yeah so yeah so if this is your first time tuning in make sure to check out elizabeth's past episodes yeah anything with doctor who in the title of the episode. yeah it's gonna be that so and also yeah. and also willow which by this point 
is it the next it's going At to be time the next recording it's coming out it's coming out today or maybe tomorrow depending on how fast my editing goes neat yes it'll be up so, very soon so so that's that's an insight into time how far in advance things uh get recorded <laughs> yeah if, if i was on uh, top of my shit willow would have been out before this recording i had family in town and was not on top of my shit so it will be out within about 24 hours of recording awesome i look forward to listening to it <laughs> Yeah, it's because I it's forgot, so far I have, as I listen to I have, you editing it. It's it's always it's always interesting to listen to the ones that I'm in because it's like ah, it's been a few months. I've forgotten what I said. <laughs> right? Yeah, I I, also, I have that when I'm editing. Also, that's like oh, this is what I did on this episode. <laughs> if you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcatcher. I'll read new five star reviews in future episodes. And please also follow the podcast on Twitter at MediatablePod and join the Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Itchdecker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So, Elizabeth, thank you again. Uh, it's always great to be here. I, I, would, I would do this every week if I could, but you are too <laughs> busy for that. <laughs> I am, sadly. Uh, but I always am thrilled to have you on. So thank you again. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye. I could never be related to someone with your dress sense. Oh, you're too kind. Mm, nobody's perfect. Speak for yourself. Oh, you can't even pilot the ship properly. I can take you anywhere in space and time. Can you? That's a bargain then. All right. Elizabeth Court? Not just yet. Let's stop off somewhere where they understand chocolate. After all that, I think we could do with a nice, relaxing cup of cocoa. Made with milk. Where do you suggest? Mexico? Well, I'm not really sure. And if I could get hold of some chocolate, I could make you one of my famous chocolate cakes to say thank you, you know. Well, I suppose a nice slice of cake wouldn't go amiss. Excellent. I do hope I don't regret this. Thank <laughs> you.